This is the Land Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome back to another Land Legacy Podcast. We are ready for spring turkey season. It is almost here. We're about uh, a week away here in Missouri, and it is spring. I'm looking at red buds. I'm looking at peaches blooming, apricots, and some cherries in the backyard, but it's quickly becoming spring in Missouri. Frank, how are you? Where are you at in your travels? Well, I am I am south of Kansas City, heading home. Yeah, uh, nice. on my uh, yeah on my way back from Nebraska. I had two consultations uh, in Nebraska, back to back, one on Saturday and and then one today, and and it was good to be in the grasslands again. Oh, I bet. Um, I uh, I spent a lot of time in the grasslands, and it's always good to get back out there and and uh, see a different landscape and. And uh, one of the consults, the, the consults were both whitetail heavy. One of them was a piece, new piece of ground a, a gentleman bought. Uh, he was he was super excited to to make it the best he could be for for him and for his kids that were coming up. They've already killed some gobblers off there. The deer hunting is a little hit and miss, but we talked about ways. To, to make it better. The, the landscape around him is conducive for good deer movement through his property. So we talked about ways how, how that we could hold deer on his property more, increase his forage base, increase his bedding capacity, uh, how to better hunt it. And, um, you know, the cool thing is, is he was already on his way. He had done some, some brome spraying, done some pollinator nice. planting already through Pheasants Forever. And um, yeah, he was he was jazzed up. And then today was was a, a native prairie section that had quite a few deep draws running through it, and sort of the same dynamic. Um, this these prairie draws were were choked with cedar, as a lot of places in the grasslands have become, and um, just were weren't holding the deer like like it should. Deer were moving through rather than spending time on the property so we we discussed ways to to increase the forage base in those wooded draws how do we uh, strategically put put bedding thickets in so that deer will will stay on the property and how to better hunt it and um, that was that was a key part of today so um, really good really good time really good to get out with folks that are really want to improve their land and make it the best possible and and do uh do it in an in, a, in an ecologically responsible way which both of these both of these families wanted to do so um don't it you was a really good week don't you appreciate that like when when, yeah. when there's people who just call or email in and they're like i just want to do this right by the landscape i just want to do this ecologically sound like i know i what i have is special and every property is special but I want to do it right. Like I don't want to just come in and 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 just willy nilly, you know, create some stuff. Like what should be here? How do I best learn 
what was natural. And, and if we can resort back to that and take the appropriate steps, that's what I want to do. And I'm like, gosh, we should be best friends. I love that approach. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was really, it was really good. And, and, um, you know, the one, one of the gentlemen really got a lot out of the podcast and, and, um, and mentioned that that's what drew, drew him to hiring us is because we were talking his language yeah. and ecosystem health and ecosystem restoration. And, and, um, you know, once we got together, we were, we were on the same page. It was, it was, um, it took no convincing on my part to everything that I recommended. He was fully on board because he saw the, the ecosystem, um, function and the functionality coming back with what we are going to talk what what we're going to recommend. So I mean, it was yeah, really like, refreshing. When, when, when it comes down to it, it's like, okay, I want to find the most logical and that often involves the most functional approach to it. And, and right. That, that's the end of it all is it's ecologically functional. And we know then it's going to be the best that it can be. And I, 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 I certainly love that approach. Um, so good, man. That's awesome. I'm glad, glad you were able to get back on the road and um, get out and see a couple new farms, help some folks yeah. out in, in Nebraska. And uh, that's a, such a cool state. Did you see any long beards out? See any strutters? I saw a few. Okay. I saw a few. Um, yeah, I did. And, it, and it, it, it really got the juices flowing. Right. I got to admit, um, it, it really did. I've been... Um, I've been stuck at, at, on the weekends doing stuff around the house, but my, my dad's been going up to our farm up in Dade County on the weekends and calling me and saying, man, I heard one over here, and I heard one over here. Nice. You're not helping me any. You're, you're, <laughs> you're just getting me, you know, just like, okay, 18th can't come fast enough. I know it. So um, I love this time of year. I, I absolutely do. And, and um, yeah, the – yeah, the juices are flowing. I gotta admit. Sweet, sweet. Well, 18th will be here soon, and uh, I, I'm I'm excited for it as well. We're, we've got uh, what I think is gonna be quite quite a turkey season um, coming. We've got some cool stuff happening, um, and, and I'm I'm excited to share it with everyone. But you know, Frank, one of the one of the things that we want to cover today in the podcast is the the spectrum in which habitat management tools fall in and specifically for different tools that are commonly used and and it really does go back and just relate to one of the principles that we always work within that we've been talking about so far in the podcast and that's the ecological function like it it, it just has to function we have to appreciate the way things were and the way they work naturally in the way that god created them and when we do that we find that balance. I, th- I think the biological term is homo- homeostasis or something like that. And, and it's like yeah. the balance between um, the function and, and, and all these factors, abiotic, biotic, within nature that we see. And, you know, I know that's a long roundabout way of saying we just want to find kind of the middle ground within these four major tools. And, and I'm going to go and just name the tools. And then you pick the one that you want to start with, and we're just going to start talking about, let's say, that spectrum um, that we see often people 
maybe going too far, stretching the limits of that tool, and then some yeah. just not yeah. going far enough. Um, so, yeah. so essentially, um, number one, we've got prescribed fire. That is a natural yeah. tool um, that is used commonly um, in some areas and uncommonly in, in others, but it's a natural tool yeah. that is used to maintain landscapes. Secondly is grazing. Grazing, be it cows, sheep, goats, whatever, but the large or herbivore present on the landscape consuming grazing in different patterns is another tool that land managers can use to restore, enhance, or destroy ecological function in whatever type of environment that they're in. But it is a tool that can be used to manage the landscape. Um, Another one that we often hear and see is logging or chainsawing. So the cutting or removal of trees Mm -hmm. across the country. Um, Obviously, everyone has heard there's places that need timber harvests drastically. They need ages, varying ages of um, trees and timber stands and other areas that cut too much um, or put too much emphasis on timber management uh, or, or production of pine trees. So there's this varying spectrum. And uh, yep. a- another one that gets a lot, and that's to be the fourth one, that gets a lot of attention is uh, herbicide. And so yeah, u- right. using herbicide too much, uh, not in the recommended rates or ways of application, and that being detrimental or damaging in other ways um, people are trying to get away from them uh, and, and and then they're not seeing the restoration practice of restoring natives uh, to the degree that they could if they just chose to use an herbicide appropriately so right. lots to unpack there but I want to focus on the fact that Everything, every decision that land managers make, landowners make, a land steward makes is relative to the habitat and the goals that they're trying to create, Frank. And right, it's, right. it's so easy for everyone to have an opinion on these tools because they do fall along a spectrum and people have different um, observations or they have different experiences um, with all of these tools that is going to influence or provide a bias for what they think of that tool and how then you should use that tool. And it's not really necessarily fair sometimes that it's like, okay, that's your personal bias, but you don't know my situation or my perspective or what I'm trying to really create on my property because I'm dealing with right. this. And yes, I'm in, or, or maybe it's, I'm in this region. Be like, oh, you can't do that. It's like, yeah, but I, I'm not, I'm not where you live at. So we just have to be open-minded. And, and I think it's appropriate for us to talk about the fact that number one, all these tools are on a spectrum, identify what the ends of those spectrums are, but talk about how good these things can be um, if, if, if and when used appropriate. So, Frank, where, where do you want to start at? Well, let's start with fire. Fire okay. is, is one of those that, um, you know, it has gained a lot of traction 
recently. You know, we, we went through the Smoky Bear phase where all fire was bad. We've thankfully come out of that, at least in the, the wildlife management, land management, ecosystem restoration uh, community, to where fire, when used appropriately and in the right timing and at the right scale, can be good. Um, yet, our understanding of that uh, and, and our application of that is still very nuanced, and it and it's, and it varies where you're at in the country. So, for example, prescribed fire. Let's say you've got a native grassland. Well, native grassland should be burned, right? That's what it. Right. That's what it historically, uh, historically was was burned back at at pre-European settlement. Native Americans burned it. It should be burned. But should we burn the entire, say we've got a whole section of grassland that we're managing, well, fire on 20 acres is good. Why don't we burn 640 acres? We've burned the entire grassland. Isn't that good? Well, no, it's not good because what you've done is while, while you have got a good burn done, while you have, you know, reset the system, what about whatever ground nesting bird had planned on nesting in that section this year. Right. Well, you've essentially wiped out all the nesting cover. And, and where we see that particularly, and it's had some, and it's had some ramifications, is so the, the central Flint Hills of, of Kansas, there's a, there's a strong fire culture and a strong grazing culture, and part of their grazing culture is to burn their native prairies. But but because it's easier for a neighbor to burn and then his neighbor to, to burn and his neighbor to burn, they tend to burn vast sections of grasslands all at once, such that you could stand on a hill Thousands. and everywhere you yeah, everywhere you look is black. Yeah. And you wonder, well, this used to be the heart of greater prairie chicken country in the entire nation. Well, prairie chickens there are on a long-term decline, and when I was doing my graduate work there, we found that only about 17% of the nests were hatching. Wow. And that what happened is these prairie chickens were forced to nest in little draws that you know were a little bit wetter and didn't quite burn, and man, they were just so subject to predation. So well, right. That, that's a, you know, a critter can easily hunt that draw. So that's a situation where, yes, fire in that system is important. It's appropriate, but it's, it's used on a scale that is, is much too big. And if, and, and if we could, if folks could burn a portion of their pasture, a third of it every year, you know, leave two-thirds for nesting, they can still get good gains from their cattle but also see ecosystem benefits for all of the critters that want to nest there. Now, on the other hand, there's parts of, of the, of, um, I'm talking about grasslands, and then we can talk about the, the woodlands too. There's parts of the grasslands in the central United States that need fire, but the fire culture isn't there. It tends to be a little drier environment, and folks are, tend to be more afraid of fire. And that's where you see 
a lot of cedar encroachment. Right. So the prairie chickens are starting to decline in those areas because there's more trees on the landscape and they just don't tolerate that stuff. So those are two extremes of fire that are, are, are having one, they're both having detrimental effects on a really iconic species. One, because there's too much fire. One, because there's not enough fire. We need to figure out ways to get fire in all of those landscapes, but at a different scale, such that we leave nesting cover in, in places, and then in the places where there's so many cedars, enough fire to control that. Yeah. So those are that's just a grassland, and that's not to even say about the eastern woodlands in North America, which, which again, on there are mostly on that extreme of no fire. Yes. Yeah, you tend to see no fire in those landscapes, and that has all sorts of ramifications for for wild turkey, for white-tailed deer. Um, you know, though. So, so that's fire is great, but. It, it tends to be used in North America either too much or not enough. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and uh, the, on, the, on the other side of things, like you just talked about one end of the spectrum or the other, but even sometimes in the middle um, where, where, where folks are, are burning, they're choosing to potentially burn in windows where objectives are unclear and yep. they may yep. just simply say, "Well, I'm burning, so I'm doing good." And and I right. And for for instance, it's like having an understory of timber that has no vegetation to set back, and it's a closed canopy system. So all you're really doing is burning up leaf litter, and and that's the only thing that's positive that's coming out there's no more herbaceous growth there's no understory that's reset there's no young forest promotion because of the system is being closed canopy and there's just not enough light getting in to spur new growth on so like that's a system where it's like man fire that's a good tool but it's not used to it's not it, it's kind of like pulling the cart before the horse. You need to thin the yeah, thin the forest right. first, then you need to follow up with the prescribed fire. So, all, you know, great, great tool. Amazing results can can follow the usage of prescribed fire when applied appropriately. And it's like we can see where too much fire is a negative thing. We can see where not not having a, enough fire on. A system is a negative thing. Then we can see where fire, even itself, misused or um, used at the wrong timing, doesn't have does. It's just like a neutral. It doesn't even have an effect. And it's like yeah, right, we, right. we we when we see the result of fire being big and positive, having great responses and results, is when the habitat itself, the vegetation that we're that we're consuming is in its appropriate form as well. And and right. that's where it's like we just we we need to be conscious of that when we're talking about fire. Maybe it's a maybe it's a social media post and maybe it's talking with others. And we need to have a little bit deeper of an understanding that fire is on a spectrum. It is good. It can do good and it can do negative and neutral 
but we see that benefit when we're burning and resetting actual vegetation and not just consuming litter or burning too frequently or just not enough. It is yeah. that middle ground. And then it's even a step farther of the middle ground and it's in the right situations or the right times for that current unit that you're trying to focus in and have a long-term desired result right. that you're trying to achieve. Right. So what you're talking about here is, is these are multiple management tools that can be used in conjunction with each other and probably should be used in conjunction with, with each other. Cause that's, that was part of the, yes. that was part of the historical um, regime. And so, you know, the woods were already thinned historically through um, lots of fire over a long period of time or Native Americans using wood resources and keeping woodlands thinner, you know, just because they were using it for campfires or, or whatever. These woodlands were thinned. And so that fire, in conjunction with those thinned woodlands, were getting these vegetation responses that these animals that we, that we so care about were thriving and and we can't get that response now until we go do the work of thinning the woodlands first and then yeah. we can introduce fire same thing with with grazing another thing another thing that works in conjunction if you use prescribed fire in conjunction with mm. grazing right. then you can see mega benefits because the the prescribed fire does its thing this is this is particularly in a in a system that has a, an abundance of grass uh, and, and, you and, do a and native warm season base. Yeah, native warm season grass and you do a fire, then you introduce grazing on top of that, then what you've done is you've really set back your grasses and so what will happen is the next year you'll have a, just a tremendous response from forbs and that's how the, that's how the historic system used to work. These grazers whether they be bison or elk, uh, would follow the fire around because that's the most nutritious food. Yep. And then, and then that, that landscape perpetuated itself over hundreds of years. And so you would get pockets of native grasses that didn't have fire and didn't get a lot of grazing because it wasn't highly palatable. So that's where the critters would nest. But then right next to it, you had a place that burned. The cattle hammered it, or excuse me, the bison, the buffalo hammered it. Then it came back into weeds, and then that was your great brood habitat. We can mimic the same thing with cattle using those two, those two natural processes in conjunction. It, it, so it's a compounding we, effect. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to think about how those dynamics work in conjunction mm. um, with each other. So not just think about, oh, I'm going to burn this, or I'm going to graze it. Well, no, how about burning it and then graze it? Or yeah. how about thinning it and then burning it? So you've got, a, you've got, these, you've got these dynamics that, that work to make your landscape much more effective and much more efficient. Yeah. How, how about you provide a couple examples, uh, Frank, of, of when you've seen grazing done too much and then maybe not enough oh yeah so um absolutely see that and you can see that across 
much of the Mid-South from, you know, southern Iowa, you know, all the way down through Arkansas and east where you've got a fescue system, cool season grass system, where the cattle are kept on year-round and it's just it's just a pool table of, of fescue or Bermuda or brome or whatever it is. And, and that system is not functional from a, from an ecosystem health standpoint or from a wildlife standpoint. That's a clear example. But also you see it in native grass systems. Um, I saw it, um, I saw it in Nebraska. I saw a lot of native grass ecosystems out there where stocking rate was too high. Plus, they're in the middle of a drought, which started late last summer. And so the, the grass growth and the, and the residual vegetation that was over the winter was, was poor. So it, it, it provided no real winter cover for, for much of anything. So that's a situation where they just stocking rates were too high. Right. Yet you'll see other systems where a guy plants a native warm season grass pasture or native warm season grass field through um, just his own money or through some government cost share. Let's say, let's, let's say for instance, CRP. People plant CRP, um, and so the contract is up. They want to keep it in native warm season grass because it looks pretty, you know, and they like it. They, they like to, to look at that native grass. But that's essentially a desert, except for around the edges where there's a little bit of weed growth. The middle of that is a desert unless there's some kind of disturbance in there because, you know, deer will bed in it. Certainly deer will bed in it, but there's certainly no deer forage out in there for them because there's no weeds. Um, there's certainly no weeds for quail, pheasants or whatever, or wild turkeys. So those are situations where because people aesthetically like a big, tall, waving pasture of, of Indian grass or big blue stem, they don't put cattle in it. It may be aesthetic pleasing, aesthetically pleasing to their eye, but from an ecosystem standpoint, it's pretty darn poor. Right. Um, so those are a couple of extremes that, that we see with, with grazing. Grazing is great. We graze a lot on some of the land that, that we manage, because, but we graze it in a way that that we're assuring that we have the cattle effect to get the forbs that we want, but also grazing light enough in some of our warm season grass stands that we leave nesting cover. So there are ways to do that, and really that's playing towards that middle ground that you're talking about. Um, and, and that's really well, where most of those species sort of thrive. Yeah, we, we, we keep saying that middle ground, but it really goes back to the, the start of the podcast is that the balance or that homeostasis that we're trying to find the middle where, where everything is going to hopefully benefit or, or in that system you're just talking about, you're, you're increasing the usable space for quail, turkey, yeah. deer. You know, that's right. And cattle, cattle get kind of a bad rap, I think, right. because most people have observed cattle grazed in a way where there is very, very little wildlife habitat left. 
So yes. they, they get a they get a bad rep from the wildlife standpoint, not from the producer standpoint, but from a wildlife standpoint, because most of the grazing, uh, at least in, in a lot of the places that we work, um, really leaves very little to no effective wildlife habitat. So they 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 treat cattle as a as a negative on the landscape. Oh, I hate cows. They just ruin everything. They graze everything down. But like anything else, you can use cattle to your benefit and create tremendous dynamic wildlife benefits if you're using it in a proper way. So that's so you can't say, well, cattle are all bad. Right. You know, so there, there's got to be some perspective and there's got to be some nuance in how you use it. And I, and I really like um, how that we have been able through the podcast to get the word out that, that hey, we, we are pro-cattle used in an appropriate way, and they can be very effective. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I really am a strong believer in that because, darn it, I've, I've seen the results. I've seen how Bob Whites have responded when we're comparing grazed ground versus non-grazed ground, and it's, you know, those kind of data don't lie. So it's right. kind of a real big believer in it. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing, too, is we, we see, you know, grazing in the east, if you will, where there's a lack of native pastures mm-hmm. or even a presence very much of any warm season uh, pastures mm-hmm. left or, or planted, um, you, you really just see non-native forages being grazed and it's a year-round kind of a cow-calf pair generally speaking type operation opposed to when you get more midwest and western where you're getting stalker operations you're getting um, other cow-calf uh, situations where uh, they're not out all year round on a single paddock or a single pasture there's differences yep. in the way that those animal units will graze um, in comparison to one from another and how long they're out on certain paddocks. Um, so it's, it's just completely different, and it's relative, again, to your region and finding the balance between the forages that they have available, the size of pastures, and what that end goal is for those pastures, how heavily weighted is it for cattle production or wildlife, and then using the cows as a tool to accomplish that goal. And, and I yeah. think, you know, that's where it's, it's honestly just kind of downright foolish to say that cows equal bad when you're trying to promote wildlife. Well, no, not always, because you've right. seen personally right. where cows have improved wildlife. And so yeah. we just need to be conscious of those types of very broad statements that we make in relationship to these natural tools, because we're trying to promote natural ecological function, but but we're we're downplaying the major tool or a major tool that can be beneficial for someone in their certain situation. Um, that, yeah. that is important and necessary. That is really maybe even, even the, the, um, the only way that they can feasibly manage a system. I, I mean, you're familiar, Frank, I'm familiar with, with people who are, you know, they're owning thousands and thousands of acres of, uh, native prairies in Oklahoma and Kansas or, or Texas and Nebraska, and um, what 
we're, we're not going to go and use a chainsaw out there to manage the prairie. Like we're going to use fire and cows because that's, that's what right. that's what that's that's what that system needs. So again, it's just it's just um, we have to be. We're talking about cows and and we're talking about disturbances and the spectrum. We have to be. Um, educated enough to be able to say that hey this there's a time and there's a place and there's a way to make it all work that that with your goals and your system they have a place yeah and i and i think also that promotion of cattle will open doors to to folks that traditionally may be hesitant to work with somebody that has a wildlife background or is interested in ecosystem health because you know, historically, they've been sort of at odds, you mm-hmm. know. They they have dealt with people who have, have a wildlife interest that are telling them, oh, your cattle are bad or your neighbor, you know, or all cattle are bad. And that and that puts them on guard. That gets a bad taste in their mouth. And they right. may be they may be less less willing to work with folks like us. But if you if you can show that you can use cattle in your system and improve things you know that they're they're more they're, they're much more willing to to work with some with some body that understands that that dynamic right on right on um how about how about let's say logging or the use of a chainsaw yeah how, how about how about some examples there frank where places yeah. where we've worked or or that you've seen in your travels where um the spectrum and usage has just been either overused or absent. Yeah. You know, a lot of it, a lot of it, especially in the eastern hardwoods or midwestern hardwoods, tends to be way on that spectrum of underused. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you'll see places where folks have logged their property to get a little income and and um, and that's great. And, it, and now it, it, it may not be, they may be high grading it or they may be doing, uh, they may not be doing it in a, in a wildlife friendly way or, or, or maximize wildlife benefit, I should say, not necessarily wildlife friendly, but to maximize right, right. wildlife benefit. But then they don't follow up with fire or other management. Mm-hmm. And then, then you've got, and that system just perpetuates yourself perpetuates itself so so there's that but then there's vast vast acreages um on private land and even public land that that just doesn't see any kind of chainsaw or any kind of logging operation at all and those and those are are very very poor for wild turkeys they're very very poor for for white-tailed deer and a host of other critters um, I mean, you got to think about historically, you know, those were tended to be more open and had more fire and, and, and less dense canopy. And these critters adapted to that system, thrived in that system. Now they're faced with uh, living in a system that provides a lot less food than it once did, a lot less cover. And so you start to see population declines or even these animals just leaving that. Um, you know, you know, if you ask somebody, and Kyle likes to use this example, um, you ask somebody, um, 
go out somebody that's got you know 200 acres of woods or say 100 acres of woods and you say well how much turkey habitat do you have and i'll say i got 100 acres of turkey habitat because i got 100 acres of woods well no that's not necessarily the case what you've got is 100 acres of closed canopy forest but it's not necessarily usable turkey habitat and right. so because it hasn't been logged and it hasn't been used so we see that on the spectrum a lot um that that is something that 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 we see a lot across the midwest and a lot across the eastern united states then you get into the south and what you start to get into is a lot of loblolly pine plantations or slash pine plantations where it's 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 all for forced production they plant a fast-growing tree it grows up the, the canopy underneath it is is pretty sparse and then after a few years they harvest that and then they start planting it again and that's a system where we're logging and timber harvest that's their crop i mean that's their corn that's their soybeans that that's the that's their crop and so they're treating it as a crop um and it and it is over on that spectrum of too much tree cutting or or too frequent and not letting the appropriate understory grow underneath it that will let, you know, provide. And you can, you've, you've seen those, those loblolly plantations. There's just nothing underneath them because, yeah, yeah it, you know, where are the wild turkey going to nest? Where, where's the deer forage? Things like that. It's, so you've got a spectrum over there that, that's really used a lot. Um, and then you see, like, also some areas where you, vast areas of clear cutting, and you know that that's something that tends to be more in the west, but that we don't see a whole lot of it here. But um, and then what they do is they replant, and then that whole system starts to go over again. So again, there's there's two wide spectrums there, but boy, the the real wildlife benefit is somewhere in the middle yeah that's where the real wildlife benefit is and i think i think the middle is described as you know um a balance of timber harvesting but also a balance of individuals or land stewards just simply going out with a chainsaw and shaping the forest and 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 it's not just oh well that's just we're going to wait for the next harvest to do this or, or I'm just going to, I'm never going to harvest and I'm just going to use a chainsaw. It's the balance between both of them. And, and I think when the way you reach that balance, I think it is to honestly evaluate what do the trees provide as a tree and what do they not provide as a tree. And so for, for whatever goal you're trying to reach wildlife related wise, you're going to find that we have to manage most of the the forest that is, uh, let's just say, Great Plains and East. It has to be actively managed because when we evaluate those benefits or lack thereof of the timber composition, your woods, your neighborhood, your acreages, and it varies from slope to slope, from neighbor to neighbor, but what is right for you um, yeah, it's probably a combination of TSI, 
of varying degrees, whether it be light, you're addressing a mid-story, a, a larger tree here and there, or heavy TSI because your composition's out of whack, and or you've just delayed a, a harvest of hardwoods and you really need to take advantage of the fact that there's value there, significant value, and yet you're too afraid to cut and they're rotten on the stump and you're degrading the value not only of mass production but also of timber revenue because you're afraid to cut, because you've heard right. cutting's bad. It is the yeah. spectrum in between that is going to give you, let's say, that optimized end result. And that's what yeah. we're essentially looking for is the optimization of, okay, I don't need to go crazy intense and I don't need to go on the far side of, no, I'll never use this tool. That's not, that's not healthy. And, and I think, Frank, when, when I think people look at forests and they look at trees, they, they look at a tree as a, 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 or a forest and they just think of big is healthy. And that's yep. not true at all in a, in a healthy forest. And this is, I would say, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but healthy forest has a balance of all ages of regeneration. Not right, necessarily right. In, in specific blocks and units, but spread throughout an entire five-acre block. It's spread throughout a 25-acre or a 100-acre block. It has varying stages of regeneration throughout it. And you can tell a lot about the way a forest is growing, or excuse me, the way the forest is going based on the presence of its understory or the lack thereof. Yeah, and, and yeah, there's a, go ahead. there's a great example. There's a great example very close to my house. In fact, it, it, borders, it borders my, my property. It's a 40-acre block of, of mostly black oak right uh-huh um and it was cut it was cut decades ago and it was so the entire 40 acre block was cut and you can tell that because the trees are all even age yeah. they're all growing straight up and then kind of a v instead of the instead of a wide spreading wolf tree type um look that you see in uneven aged forest uh but the problem is, is they're black oaks, so they're reaching the end of their natural life cycle after, you know, black oaks tend to drop out at 80, 90, right. 100 years, whereas your white and post oak species last much longer. Well, this forest is now dropping out. The, the black oaks are starting to die. Well, what's, what's coming back? And, and it was so shaded that there was that there's very little oak regeneration coming back. Right. So now it's coming back into a forest more of weed species, mm. shade tolerant things like um, like dogwood or elm or ash or um, stuff that can that can handle that shade tolerance. So that once oak hickory forest, you know, unmanaged is now going to be you know, is now going to be a different, it's going to be a different force type and provide less benefits for wildlife because it was left unmanaged. So it's not a healthy forest whatsoever. Yeah. Um, it's, it's there from you drive by, you think, well, that's a nice piece of timber. That's healthy. You start to look in it 
and it's the whole composition is changing, and it's not healthy at all. Yeah. So there has to be some kind of management, whether it's never logged again, but if you go in there and start selecting trees to cut uh, to make it more healthy, then that's, that's going to very much benefit that forest. It's going to allow oak regeneration. It's going to allow hickory regeneration, things that, things that aren't going to regenerate when it's so much shade in the ground. Totally. In the canopy. Totally. That, that shade and moisture level um, in an understory is drastically changing the future of the white oak. Um, a lot of things, I, I think the term is mesofication. Um, yeah. And, and it, it, the, the amount of maple that's coming back, beech coming back, American holly, coming back, it, it, it's relative to your area, your ironwoods, um, the ones that love the moist, damp, more shade tolerant species are dwelling where oaks and hickories are not the future of those forest poppers right. and it's it's uh it's definitely alarming so yeah, we just need to be is. we need to be again aware of what a healthy forest looks like because when you look around you don't generally see it and, and it involves management and involves active harvesting active trees being cut to some degree um that is a healthy forest and uh, we just need to be reminded of that sometimes and it's relative to your area relatively relative to the land use and your objectives but chainsaw and timber harvesting are tools that we commonly will recommend on properties in a lot of different states you know the, yeah. the, the last one frank is can be a highly debated topic um but but one that is i i think uh, maybe even a little bit more weighted and, and passionate about because of its heated debate. Um, but that right. is the spectrum in which herbicides fall on. Um, there are people who have misused and overused herbicides. And there's now other people who will never use an herbicide. And that is or could be the difference between restoring a, a native prairie or restoring a native plant community and not due to right. invasive species or or potentially due to woody encroachment um, and, and so on and so forth. So there is an absolute balance that this tool falls within. And um, you know, give, give us a couple of examples of what you've seen on, on either side of those spectrums. Yeah. So herbicide is one of those things, like you, like you talked about, it's hotly debated, uh, whether from an ecosystem health standpoint or even a human health standpoint. Right. Uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of debate out there um, from people who say don't use anything at all to people say, well, there's no, there, there's, glyphosate is completely fine, Roundup and don't need to care about it at all. You know, just, you know, you can drink the stuff and you'll be fine. So there's, there's, there's people on either side of that. And I will say that, and I know, and I know you, that you'll probably agree, it is exceedingly difficult to do much of what we do without herbicide. 
if yeah. we for some somebody you know snapped their fingers and all herbicide was taken away we would have a, a very very difficult time restoring native landscapes for instance today and yesterday there um there were particularly yesterday the gentleman had some hay ground that was all grown and if we want and he wanted to do a pollinator planting in that in that right and the only way that that's going to be successful is he's going to burn the thatch let the brome get four to six inches tall then he's going to spray the brome and then drill in the pollinator mix he's already done it on a portion of his property i don't really know how i mean you can smother brome out with like black plastic or something like that but you can't do 30 acres of black plastic on a brome field it's not efficient it's not feasible so i don't know another way how we would get this recommended practice done without the use of herbicide and while and we are doing it in the name of get, getting rid of something that's exotic and invasive and provides essentially no wildlife benefits to something that's native and provides tons of wildlife benefits and because we have invasive species sometimes we have to use tools that um, may be a little controversial like herbicide now so there's there's folks that say we don't want to use herbicide and we've we've done that on our prairies we've seen that on some of our prairies where we're hesitant to use herbicide on our prairies because we have so many um conservative rare plants on our prairies plants that only exist on the prairies and so you use fire and haying and mowing and stuff to control sumac but right. what we're seeing is we're not getting control, and in fact, we're exacerbating the problem of mowing the sumac because that just makes it mad and it sends runners out. Right. And where we had an acre of sumac, now we have three. Right. So we've had to necessarily use uh, herbicide on our native prairies. Now, we don't just go broadcast it with a boom sprayer. Right. We use a wick. We use a wick such that we're driving through the sumac and only touching the sumac leaves and it works very very well but even on our most precious and rare native landscapes herbicide because of invasive species or because of um even native weedy yes. invasive species we have to we have to use it I, um, I, I might make a bold statement here but i'm going to make it i feel like if 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 you are a proponent of native restoration of plant communities, but you're anti-herbicide, how effective? You have to ask yourself, how effective are you going to be in this yeah, present day and age? And and I feel like you have to, like you you have to be you have to embrace the fact that that is the tool that is going to be able to it when when used appropriately is going to be the tool that saves the most native landscapes and restores the most native landscapes moving forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you because it's, you know, let's say that gentleman with the brome, he wanted to, I'll kill the brome by plowing that. 
well, okay, maybe that does it. But what you've done, what what he's done is he's set himself. You, you don't kill all the brome around it, and eventually brome will will creep back in. It's very invasive, and then maybe you set the tone for thistles to start taking advantage of that tilled up ground or Johnson grass to take advantage of that. You kind of open up a Pandora's box when you do some of that stuff, and especially in the east, we see that. Yes. Whereas a, a, a you know, a quick treatment of glyphosate, and and you and you've got it. Um, or, or, so, or even I, usage of herb herbicide as as a stump treatment, where where you're yeah. applying it directly to the stump as an individual tree to kill out a root system to increase the ability to manage a forest, its composition as a forest, or perhaps to restore a woodland or a, create a savanna um, and, and encourage more diverse herbaceous plants. We have to cut the tree down and you have to then use herbicide to treat the stump to get that desired result. Or you're just yep. going to, like you said with the sumac, make it mad and it's going to stump sprout. And, yep. and and we like that that usage is is a hundred percent necessary, but very applicable to to reach the desired result, opposed Absolutely to right. opposed to potentially um, let's say a, 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 an aerial application of a herbicide that is just a very broad spectrum that is going to target or be less selective. Like we're we're choosing to use a very selective method of treatment to accomplish a very um, Define definitive goal here. That's a great yeah. usage of a tool. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that, those are great examples of judicious, effective uses of herbicide. Now, again, there's a spectrum, and then yes. and then there's a, there's a very um, non-judicious use of herbicide. And there's a couple of examples that I'll give. One has been an, an historic example that we're still seeing the effects of. So um, back in the, and it still goes on today to an extent, but back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, a lot of ranchers in, in Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma sprayed their native prairies with an airplane with 2,4-D yep. to, kill all, to kill off all the weeds. Because we want cattle eat grass, so if we kill off all the weeds, we'll get grass, and we'll have more, we'll have more grass for our cattle. And 2,4-D has a very strong residual effect on a lot of forbs. And even today, you can see side by side a prairie that has been sprayed versus one that has not been sprayed, and there's a huge difference and the amount of forbs and weeds that are in the in the non-sprayed prairie versus the one that was sprayed in 1984, for example. There's right. a long residual effect. Well, it turns out weeds are super beneficial for cattle. Weeds are, are great. Yep. Cattle love to eat weeds. So that's an example of, of using herbicide on a broad spectrum for way too... On, on a much larger scale than, than it ever should have been used in a way that was probably never should have been used for for a justification that that may not have, have 
got the desired result. It got the desired result of more grass, but at the expense of wildlife habitat, and the cattle were going to eat the weeds, many of the weeds anyway. It's a, it's so a short-term, ex- short-term benefit, uh, but but a long-term detriment uh, yeah, for the, for the, for the misuse, or misunderstanding. I, I, and I'd say that's just a that's just an, a product of, of um, a lack of education of how how herbivores graze, what their what the preference is, the benefit of the the broadleaf in a prairie, and now yeah, now we're yeah. left with a oh. lack of diversity. That's right. And a lot of this was done based on advice from state extension offices before research. Well, they, and, they had done some, and they had done some research, but before really large-scale prairie research and large-scale cattle um, dietary uh, you know, preferences were done. So they, they were doing it at... They were doing what they thought was was yep. the best at the time, and they were they were doing it so that they could increase their bottom line. And so you can't fault them because they were going off the information they had. Yeah. But what it did is it is it turned out to re- have a really negative impact and a legacy impact on the amount of forbs and weeds that are available in a pasture now versus one that, that wasn't sprayed because that has a very, very long legacy effect. Um, and now there's there's other chemicals that if folks want to spray have a very short legacy effect or don't or may not, or, you know, there's one like there's Remedy. We spray yes. Remedy a lot on our Cerecia lespedeza. Triclopyr. And, and, yeah, and we tend to see less harm on beneficial forbs using that than if we were to spray our cerecia with uh, 2,4-D or some other chemical. So there's ways to do it. There's ways to do it because there's new research and there's new chemicals. Um, another th- another way the chemical is way overused is a guy's reading the label and it says, okay, to c- kill your fescue, let's say one to two ounces per um, acre and uh, one to two ounces of of um, or one to two ounces per gallon, something like that, or, or, and I'm just talking off the top of my head, right. something like that with fescue. Well, if one to two ounces kill it, I bet four to five ounces will really kill it. It'll murder it. And it so, won't kill it. It'll yeah, just murder it. Yeah, it'll murder it. So <laughs> what happens, a couple things happen. You're putting way too much chemical on the landscape, right? Yep. Than is needed. You're wasting money. You're putting way too much chemical, and a lot of times if you spray a plant with too hot of an herbicide or too high of a concentration, we see that with cerecia. If we spray cerecia with too hot or too high of a concentration of triclopyr or remedy, we'll just burn the leaves off, and the plant roots, the, the herbicide hasn't translocated to the plant roots, and the plant still lives. Yep. Right? So it, so. You we burned it too, too fast. We burned it too fast. So it's critically important to read that label. Those labels are there for a reason. There's been thousands of dollars and many years of, ex- of time going in to develop those labels. Yes. And those labels, follow those labels for the specific purpose. Um, don't just say, well, if two ounces works and five ounces, my gosh, it'll really work. Exactly. Well, 
it may or may not, and, and you're you're wasting money, and you're putting, especially chemicals that don't, you know, that that don't have soil, um, that don't Activity. bind to the soil, like like yeah, like like glyphosate does. It binds to the clay particles, so you don't get a lot of runoff. But especially if you're using a chemical that doesn't do that, then you've got the potential for runoff into your water sources. Um, you know, and you could cause some issues with that. So right something to be very careful with. Yeah, and, and it, at the end of the day, again, we're, we're just trying to find the balance and be good stewards of the land, but we have to make sure when we're, when, not only if, if you're out there recommending, if you're out there commenting, if you're out there giving advice, if you're out there trying to, to make your own management decisions on your property, we have to be to understand that these the, these practices are on a spectrum and that perspective and goals for each unit and the unit the composition of the plants within those units varies greatly and and, and we can, what works for you may not work for another individual and so we just have to be knowledgeable enough to understand the dynamics of each one of these tools and the advice that we give to get that desired result and know that it is on a spectrum and what may be best for you may not be best for someone else. And, yeah, and at the yeah. end of the day, we have to make the best management decision for you, your goals, what is the, the most conservation-minded practice and recommendation or technique applied to that specific unit itself. Right. Right. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And you see that a lot of times on social media where, where people feel, you know, free to comment on stuff. And and I, I know a lot of times their heart's in the right place. Sure. But it, you, you've got to be, like you said, you've got to be cognizant of, you got to take a step back and think, okay, where is this person at? I don't know his farm. I don't know his landscape. Maybe I can DM him, send him a private message and say, hey, you know, what? can you give me some more context on your place? Maybe I can provide some help if I had a little more context rather than just saying, oh, you can't do that. That'll never work. Yes. Or, oh, you should do this. This will work every time. It, there's, You've got to have context, and, and you've got to know the context. Those people... Um, we all do. We're we're happy. We're proud of, of of the of the land that we manage and the results that we're getting. So we we love to share that with people. We're doing that to to not only to kind of the good stuff that we're getting done, but to also encourage other people to take that leap. Um, and then oftentimes you feel you get some negative impact that kind of burst your bubble there or negative input that burst your bubble and kind of deflate you a little bit because the person doesn't know the, the, the context. So yeah. I guess a cautionary message would be to, to kind of, you know, maybe try to get the full context before, before trying to give somebody advice because they've worked very, very hard on it and they're very proud of it. And some of that negative stuff can, can kind of ruin their day and, and make them feel like, man, maybe I am doing the wrong thing or, or get defensive and say, well, you idiot, you don't know what you're talking about. And start some kind of Instagram fight. Yes. So, Perspective you know. and context 
is very, very important. Very important. Because, yeah. because, honestly, you you run the risk of exposing yourself and the lack of understanding that that the person who's making those decisions has. Yeah. Because they're yeah. familiar with the site. So. Uh, yes, obviously, all, all good, good advice there. Um, but it is, it's important to know the, the, the pros and cons of every tool that we have out there and, and, and um, know that there's a spectrum. And uh, here at Land and Legacy, we slide back and forth in the middle range of those spectrums in, in uh, regards to those tools that we covered today on the podcast. Frank, I appreciate... Um, your time, your knowledge here this week on the podcast, and um, your expertise in working with uh, the new clients in the state of Nebraska. I know. Uh, oh, you bet. I know, I know you, you enjoyed bet. your time up that way, and, and appreciate I you did. making that trip. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for the opportunity. I enjoy I enjoy getting and seeing new landscapes and visiting with you on these podcasts. Um, I get as much out of it as I bring to it. So that's right. Me too. Um, it's a, it's a lot of it's a, it's it's something I really really enjoy. So thanks for having me. Hey, you bet, man. Well, safe travels back home, and guys, we'll catch you next week.